Our scripture today is from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15, and it's on page 11 in your pew Bibles and on the screen behind me. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive the others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. invite you to find your way back to Matthew chapter 6 with me. This morning we are continuing our series looking at our eight core commitments as a church. The commitments which provide the strategy or the avenue through which we hope to see our vision become a reality. This vision to see Christ treasured above all things uh, here in Metro West Boston throughout every corner of the world. And so, so far, we have looked at God-centered worship. We've considered biblical exposition. Today, we're going to consider Christ treasured through prayer. That's our third core commitment. So, uh, as you make your way to Matthew 6, uh, let's pray together that God would meet with us this morning. Lord, we thank you again that when your word is opened, you are speaking What we need more than anything right now is for ears to hear you, Lord. We need your spirit to meet us, to open our hearts, to give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. And Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning as we consider this incredible gift you've given us in the Lord's Prayer and what that means for us as a church. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a little less than one month, my wife Carissa and I will become parents of a teenager. I know. Uh, And one of the many dynamics, I'm looking forward to it, I don't say that with an ominous tone or anything, Uh, but one of the many dynamics that will change and that we're already kind of beginning to observe is that there is a massive difference between having a conversation with a teenager and having a conversation with a four-year-old or a nine-year-old. You ask your nine-year-old, how was school on the way home? And depending on their personality, you're likely to get an earful about details you didn't even want to know about who said what and who did what and so on. You ask your teenager how school was, and it's more like, hmm. I mean, the mouth doesn't even open. It's just kind of this, hmm. Uh, you know, my my young kids will barge into a conversation just excited to share what's going on. Uh, you know, for Joshua, that can feel like, you know, instead of this highly relational, spontaneous conversation on the way home from school, this question starts to feel more routine. 
You ask me that every day, Dad. Do I really have to answer that question again? And so, you know, when you think of, of conversing with teenagers, the more free-flowing, spontaneous conversations usually happen when? When the teenager needs something, right? When they, when they want to do something or, or uh, need your permission or your money to do it. And, and I'm not trying to throw teenagers under the bus here. Is that generally accurate, teenagers with us? Is that kind of how it... It's okay. I know there are exceptions to the rule. But that's often how it works, right? But other than that, other than when you need something, conversation between a parent and a teenager tends to decrease. And, and it becomes relatively optional. And although that breaks mom and dad's heart, that's not entirely surprising since the teenage years are marked by an increasing independence. You're preparing for adulthood, which means less dependence on your parents, and that less dependence often, though not necessarily, translates into less conversation. It's just kind of how it works. And again, I'm not trying to, you know, embarrass teenagers here or or throw anybody under the bus. Believe it or not, I was a teenager, and so were your parents, and I remember when mine weren't cool, and it was awkward to have to talk to them about things. But the reason I bring all of this up is because there is a temptation for all of us to take that same posture when it comes to conversing with our Heavenly Father in what we call prayer. To view prayer as routine, kind of impersonal. Something that you know you're supposed to do, but your heart's not always in it. And to be rather self-centered when we do pray. To only talk to God when we need something from Him and to make that conversation all about us. Because for the most part, we tend to make prayer optional. We think that we've got this. We can handle this. We, we, we kind of view our life as independent. And so we, we often approach prayer like an angsty teenager who's eager to assert our independence from the Father rather than as a little child who knows that they need Dad and just wants to spend time with Him. But prayer is a gift. It's a gift that God has given us. To have, I mean, just think about what we're doing when we pray. To have access and to be invited into the presence of the God of the universe who wants to hear what's on our mind, who wants us to pour out our hearts. And like any gift from the Father, prayer is given to us both for God's glory and for our good. It is designed to magnify God's glory while nurturing our joyful dependence on Him. And if that's the case, that means that we will never see Christ treasured above all things apart from the kingdom-driven prayers of His children. Prayer is essential to the vision God is calling us to and giving us. And so what I want to do this morning is to think about this core commitment of prayer uh, by looking at the prayer Jesus gave his disciples, really the prayer that teaches us how to pray, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 
where we see that God's vision for prayer is anything but routine. It's anything but going through the motions. It's anything but self-centered, and it's anything but optional. Rather, it is deeply personal. It is prioritized around God and His kingdom, and it offers to us, it makes available to us the very power we so desperately need for our life and our ministry that promotes the treasuring of Christ above all things. And so what I, wa- I want to start with the personal nature of prayer. Uh, so look again in Matthew chapter 6. The Lord's Prayer comes to us smack dab in the middle of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the sermon where Jesus is laying out before his disciples his vision for what life should look like under his rule and reign, under his, as part of his kingdom. It's a life of brokenness, as Jesus calls it, uh, a poverty of spirit in Matthew 5.3, a brokenness that readily acknowledges our need for the Savior and the King. But it's also a life of righteousness. So living under God's rule and reign is both brokenness but also righteousness. Not just on the surface where you know, people can see it, which is what the religious leaders of the day were really good at doing. Looking righteous. But a righteousness that actually flows out of a heart that is dependent on God. So that's the portrait of the kingdom that, that Jesus is pick, painting this this big picture throughout chapters 5 through 7, and right in the middle of it, he begins to talk about this thing called prayer. And, and he's, he's discussing several acts of righteousness that God's people regularly participate in, giving and fa- uh, praying and fasting, and the danger of turning any of those three things into a show to make ourselves look good. He warns in chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So giving is not a show. Prayer is not a show. You must not pray like the hypocrites, verse 5, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. And, and when you pray, verse 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Prayer is not a show. So what then is it? That's what Jesus answers in verses 9 to 15 when he gives his disciples this model for prayer. Notice how he doesn't say, Pray this, but pray then like this. This is his model. This is the pattern that teaches us not just what to say when we pray, but how to pray. What, what to emphasize, the relational nature of it, what to focus on in our prayers. And the first thing we see in this model prayer is that prayer is intensely personal. It's intensely personal. Look at the address at the beginning of verse 9 of the prayer. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. That is highly personal, relational language. Prayer is not thinking about an idea 
or meditating about the cosmos or going through a religious ritual. It's talking to a person. Prayer is talking to a person. A person who's far above us in heaven and yet who, to whom we are intimately related. As one author explains, Jesus brings together two ideas here that are true only of royal children. The intimacy of children and access to the great king. Or as Tim Keller often says, you know, who has permission to go wake up the king at 3 a.m. to ask for a glass of water? Can anybody just barge into the palace and do that? No. Only his kids have that kind of access. And that's what we are. That's the kind of access we have to our Father in heaven. The one we address in prayer is in heaven, and yet he's our Father. And so the whole of our worship and the whole of our prayer flows from those few words, our Father in heaven. Prayer is personal. It's anything but routine. Now, the irony here is that because the Lord's Prayer is so familiar to so many of us, it's actually very easy for this prayer to become routine, right? Some of us grew up in church traditions where we prayed the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. Uh, We pray it every time that we celebrate communion here because we want to learn it and we want our kids to learn this model prayer. But because of that familiarity, it's easy for it to devolve into a religious ritual. Something we say without even thinking about what we're saying. Uh, not actually saying, him, saying these words to anyone specifically. We're just going through the motions. Like we're being forced into a conversation that we're not really interested in having. Prayer can be routine. But the problem is not the regularity of going through a routine. Jesus had a routine for prayer. He rose early in the morning to pray, Mark 1. He found alone time to pray, Matthew 14. He sometimes spent the whole night in prayer, Luke 6. The problem is not having a routine. The problem is that when we forget that we're talking to our Heavenly Father in the midst of that routine. Jesus' prayer was always in communion with and dependence on his Father. He never forgot who he was talking to. And so, if prayer is to be personal, we must never let ourselves forget who we're talking to when we pray. We're talking to our Father in heaven. And, and the reason we're even able to have that conversation with our Father in heaven is also because of Jesus. It's through our union with him that we even have this kind of access to God. It's interesting that the only place in all four Gospels where the phrase, our Father, occurs is right here in this prayer. Everywhere else, when Jesus talks about the Father, he says, my Father. My Father. And so when he tells us to pray our Father, he's not talking about y'all's Father. He's talking about his Father and your Father, our Father. It's our union with Jesus 
his invitation into that unique relationship that he has with God that allows us to pray our Father. It's ours and Jesus' Father. That's the point of the our there. Because it's through Christ that we have access to God. It's we who were lawbreakers and, and rebels against God's kingdom have, have been invited into the life and, and the forgiveness that comes from Jesus who was the perfect law keeper in our place. He lived a life of perfect covenant faithfulness before his father. He died in our place to bear the weight and the penalty of our rebellion and our insurrection. That we might be forgiven and reconciled to God and that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of the king. We're able to pray our father because Jesus is our brother, our savior. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We have access to the Father, our Father in heaven, through our union with Jesus, his son. And that makes prayer personal, not routine. We're invited into God's presence. It's not small talk that we're forced into on the way home from school. It's an invitation to bring our hearts, our cares, our questions, our desires, our needs before the God of the universe who made us, who rules us, who saves us, who loves us, and who has the authority and the power to do something with what we pray. Prayer is personal. That's the first thing that we learn here. Second, we learn that prayer, that there's a priority structure to our prayer life. There's a priority structure woven into the Lord's Prayer. If you look again at these verses, you notice that there are six different petitions or requests in this prayer. The first three focus on God and His glory. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The next three then focus on our good. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. And so it begins with God and his glory and only then moves on to our needs and our good. And that priority structure is important, as we're going to see. But think about the contrast that that, that priority structure makes with our typical prayer lives, right? I mean, if you think about what are the prayer requests that we tend to share with each other or the, just our own personal prayer life, what is that usually focused on? On us, right? On our needs, our concerns, our, our problems. You know, the homework and the tests, the safety of our kids, the provision of our needs, the the health of, of friends and family who, who are ill or, or injured. That dominates our typical prayer life. 
Now, is it wrong to pray for those things? No, not at all. God wants us to pray for those things. He wants us to bring all of those things, whatever's on our heart. He wants us to bring that to him in prayer. But he wants us to pray first for his glory. To pray first for his glory. Because it's only in light of his glory that we actually know how to pray for our good, for our needs. And so the first three petitions in this prayer are all unabashedly God-focused. God-focused prayer. Hallowed be your name. Now that's a word we don't use very often today, hallowed. Unless you're a Harry Potter fan and the Deathly Hallows or something like that. Uh, We don't hear that word very often, but it means sacred or holy. To hallow means to sanctify, to make holy or to consider holy. And so what we're asking here, we're asking God to do that with his own name. May your name be considered holy, your reputation. May your reputation, who you are, what you've done, be thought of and acknowledged as holy. And so really the first request here in this prayer, it's a prayer that God would be glorified. That his name would be treated as holy and sacred and worthy of praise and honor. That he'd be magnified and lifted high and that everyone would recognize God's worthiness and therefore hallow his name. Praise it. Make it holy. And then your kingdom come. That's the second petition. May the rule and reign of God that Christ has established in his first coming, his life, death, and resurrection, and that he's going to complete when he returns, may that reign and rule of Christ be made known, be increasingly felt, increasingly acknowledged, increasingly delighted in and obeyed on earth. And so it's a request that God would be duly honored as king and that the values and ways of his kingdom would be established on earth, the justice, the righteousness that we look forward to in full when he returns. That his saving, purifying, Jesus-exalting rule would hold sway in our lives and would finally come in universal glory. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As John Piper puts it, we pray that we would do the will of God the way that the angels do it in heaven. Think about that. Think about how the angels obey the Lord. Would we do His will just like they do, without hesitation and full of zeal and thoroughness? That God would be treated as He deserves to be treated. He would be recognized in His worthiness, And that we would delight to do his will by his power. That's our priority in prayer. The glory of God. That's where the prayer starts. And this matters. Prioritizing God's glory in our prayer life matters. Because what we pray for most is what we treasure most. Think about that. What we pray for most 
is what we treasure most. If I'm more concerned in securing my good than seeing his glory fill the earth, then I'm not finding my good in his glory. I'm actually putting my kingdom in front of his. As one author explains, prayer doesn't Prayer that doesn't start with God is always in danger of concentrating on ourselves and very soon it stops being prayer altogether and collapses into random thoughts, fears, and longings of our own minds. But rightly ordered, that is, surrendered to God's will and glory, praying for ourselves and our needs is not just important, it's crucial And when we surrender our needs to God's glory, what we need to pray for for ourselves actually comes into greater focus and clarity. We know better how to pray for ourselves and for each other when we pray first for God and his glory. It filters the way that we pray horizontally. And so look at the second half of Jesus' model prayer here and notice how... What he tells us to pray for ourselves is probably much bigger than what we would typically pray for ourselves if we started with us instead of starting with him. So so look at the three petitions that we have here. First is a prayer for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Now that one is is straightforward. We get that one. We probably pray that one a lot, right? That, That God would provide our basic needs. Uh, The language here is actually an echo of ancient Israel's experience in the wilderness when they had to, literally, had to depend on God every day for bread. They're in the wilderness, they have no food, and God's providing the manna. So, you know, asking God for daily bread, that meant to remind us of that story. That's the kind of dependence we need to have on God for our basic provisions, and, and some of us feel that. We feel the pinch of finances and other things. Some of us, it's really easy to forget that. And I think in America, especially when you're surrounded by 12 grocery stores within, you know, four miles of here, it's really easy to think that I don't need to depend on God for food. I could just go to the store and buy it. But everything we have comes from God's hand. And we need to remember that. And when we're focused on his kingdom, we remember that a lot easier. So so we pray for basic provision. Second is a prayer for pardon. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Even greater than our need for provision is our need for pardon. Even greater. Because again... Even as we address our Father in heaven, left to ourselves, we stand before him as rebels and insurrectionists against his kingdom. Guilty of treason. And so, the request here is that God would apply to us each day the perfect redemption that Jesus obtained once for all time at the cross. That we would walk daily in the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Because, guess what? We're going to mess up again. You know, beginning a relationship with God isn't about, you know, canceling all the sins up to that point and now I need to, you know, kick it into gear and, and stay holy so I don't mess up again. We need to walk in holiness, but 
but we do continue to sin. And His grace is sufficient to cover not just the sins of our past, but the sins of our present and the sins of our future because His blood was enough. And we need to rely on that pardon every single day in our relationship with God. Otherwise, guess what we're going to do when it comes to prayer? We're going to hide. Just like Adam and Eve hid in the garden. We have this invitation to be in the Father's presence. But if we're not depending on the forgiveness we have in Christ, we will not avail ourselves to that invitation. We will hide in our shame. And so Jesus offers this grace, mercies that are new every morning, and we need to pray for that pardon daily that God would remind us and and apply that once-for-all redemption to our daily relationship with Christ. So forgive us our sins, our debts, as we've forgiven our debtors. As Jesus assumes here, and and one author clarifies it, if we're asking for divine forgiveness, we've already been in the business of forgiving the little debts of even our biggest debtors. The forgiven must be forgiving. Not in order to be justified, but because we are justified before God. Jesus elaborates on that. If you're not eager to forgive those who've sinned against you, you probably don't understand what Christ has done for you. And so the forgiven are forgiving. So third then is a prayer for protection. Provision, pardon, protection now. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This prayer is a recognition that there is an enemy in this fallen world who stands in opposition to God and his rule and who would seek to trip us up at every turn in order not just to destroy us, but to destroy our witness. To make God look bad. That's what happens when we fall. It doesn't just hurt us. It doesn't just hurt the people around us. It tarnishes God's reputation. And and so we need protection. If if we're going to see Christ treasured, not just in our lives, but others' lives, we need protection from the evil one. And we need to pray for God to provide that through Christ. The power to say no to sin and yes to godliness. That's what this prayer here is about. And so so think again about your personal prayer life. Or or your corporate prayer life in your small groups and whatever. Your family. What do you typically prioritize in your prayers? And how does it line up with this model that we've been given? Am I praying primarily for my well-being or the well-being of others? Or am I praying primarily for the glory and kingdom of Christ, which may and will actually involve suffering? Are we more focused on achieving our dreams or seeing Christ treasured above all things? Are we praying not merely for food on the table and the ability to put a rent check in the mail, but for souls to be nourished by the word of God, for hearts to be changed and our lives to look more and more like Jesus as a result? Are we praying not only for money for college or for braces or for a new TV, but money to be able to give generously to the Lord's work here and around the globe? 
when we pray for healing for loved ones, are we praying not only that God would restore their bodies, but through this he would transform their hearts and anchor their joy in the treasure that will not decay, will not get sick, the treasure of Christ. When we pray for the safety of our kids, are we more worried about them falling off of their bike than falling into sin? Are we more concerned for their physical safety than their spiritual safety? And, and those are not mutually exclusive. It's not like, well, if you pray for the physical, you're not, you don't care about the spiritual or vice versa. God wants us to pray for both. But our tendency is to put our kingdom first. That's just how our fallen hearts are wired. And God's saying, we've got to reverse the order prioritize his kingdom and glory. And then we actually know how to pray best for the needs and desires before us. Prayer is designed to magnify God's glory while nurturing our joyful dependence upon him. So we're not neglecting our needs. We're putting them into context. That, that what... The priority is, what the greatest goal is, is Christ and his kingdom. Him being treasured above all things. And, and this kind of prayer is necessary. It's necessary. It's not optional for the Christian. It's not incidental to our mission. Because prayer offers to us the very power of God that we so desperately need. If we're going to walk with him, if we're going to see Christ treasured. And that's the third and much more briefer reflection this morning. The prayer is powerful. When we don't pray, what we're saying to God is that we don't really need him. When we don't pray, what we're saying to God is that we don't really need him. And again, that's so often the subtext in these, you know, what can be frustrating conversations with teenage kids, right? Uh, it's not that the child doesn't love you. It's that they are no longer feeling that they need you quite as much as they used to. They want to be independent on their own, able to make their own decisions. And so they're not going to ask for help anymore, and they don't want to have to ask for permission. So, so the silent treatment is often simply a declaration of independence from the parent. We do the same thing to God when we fail to pray. We declare our independence from Him through our lack of prayer. We don't pray because we think that we've got this, that we can handle it, whatever it is, even serving God. We're doing good things for God. We will do that without praying because we think we've got this. But Psalm 127 reminds us, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. If God doesn't do it, it's not really going to get done. A failure to pray is actually a failure to trust. It's a failure to treat God as God and to recognize that if his will is going to be accomplished. He's the one that has to do it. And so we pray. 
J.I. Packer writes that the prayer of the Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world. Think about that posture. When we're on our knees, we know it's not we who control the world. It's not in our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God and will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from His hand. In effect, therefore, what we do when we pray is to confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. Our powerlessness and His perfect sovereign power. And so prayer is necessary. It's not incidental. It's necessary because we are weak. And it's necessary because God is powerful. And it is our primary means of depending on God. It's our expression of need and our availing of ourselves to His power. God commands us to pray throughout the Scriptures, not just here, throughout the Bible, Not because he needs our prayers, but because in his mercy and providence, he uses them. He invites us into that relationship and includes us in his redemptive plan through our prayers. That's amazing. That's amazing. And so if we're going to see Christ treasured above all things, if if we want to see hearts that are captivated by his incomparable value, and, and hearts that are filled with passionate desire for him. And, and therefore resting in, an, in the unparalleled satisfaction that Christ alone can supply. If that's what we want to see here, at home, in our neighborhoods, throughout Metro West, to the ends of the earth, then we must be devoted to prayer. It will not happen apart from the kingdom driven prayers of God's people. He has ordained it to include our prayers. So what does that look like moving forward? Well, in many ways, you all are going to have to answer that question. You all are going to have to answer that question. What does this mean? If prayer is personal, if it's kingdom driven, if it's necessary what does that look like for me personally Uh, what does it look like in my family in my friendships in my discipleship relationships my home group or small group my bible study in a lot of ways it's the people who pray that have to take that initiative for prayer we can provide opportunities as a church we do that there are three prayer meetings every week and there's a prayer meeting for praying for high school youth and there's a monthly prayer meeting for praying for our mission and there's other types of environments where we can gather to pray and we should do that and we can continue to provide those opportunities. But the reality is we have to believe that we need prayer before we're going to show up for something like that. And so the more important question to ask than when should we pray is do I really believe that we need to pray for ourselves, for the accomplishment of our vision, 
or do we think that we've got this? That this vision out here, this, this call God's given us to walk with him, we've got this. If we feel the need, if we sense the urgency, and if we see the value, we will make time to pray. We will. We don't need structured plans. Those are great. We'll do that. But we have to believe we need it, and we have to want it, or it's not going to happen. And that means we need to recognize God's incomparable worthiness, our humble weakness before him, the joyful relationship he's given us through Jesus, the invitation to bring our hearts before him, and his plan to use our prayers for the advance of his kingdom. We've got to be convinced of that if we're going to be a people of prayer. God is worthy. Will we come with joy and eagerness and the dependence of a little child, eager to spend time with dad. Christ will not be treasured above all things apart from the kingdom-driven prayers of his people. But this is what he promises. In John fourteen thirteen, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Our prayers produce the treasuring of Christ, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so what I want to do right now as we close, I want to give us an opportunity to pray. Um, right where you're at, you don't have to get up and move, but in, in with the people around you, I want to give us a few minutes to put into practice what Jesus is modeling for us right now. To pray together kingdom-driven prayers who start with his kingdom and then move on to the needs that you have. And, and we're not going to spend time sharing requests first and then praying. We're just going to go right into it. We're going to pray. You've got requests. We'll pray with you as you do it. But just with the people right around you, you don't have to get up and move. You don't have to pray out loud if you're uncomfortable doing that. Just join in with those next to you. But we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. And then in a few minutes, we'll conclude by singing together the Lord's Prayer. Okay? So the next couple minutes, right where you're at, if you're by yourself, then you can scoot over. It's okay. But we're going to pray. Start with God's kingdom move into our needs that Christ might be treasured above all things. Let's pray. This morning we pray. Uh, we, uh, just, if you want prayer, uh, we have members of our prayer team who are available near the organ after the service. They love that privilege and opportunity. You can find them there. And uh, Let's continue to ask God how we can be a people of prayer. And, and He's worth it. Now receive the benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.